1: Well, hello. Welcome along. Look what you've stumbled into. It's only the smartest and greatest podcast in the history of the universe. Let's explore everything. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Alright then, welcome along. My name's Dan. This is... Our search around the solar system every week, you and me, we come together to explore some secrets that are lurking, those little science nuggets that maybe we haven't found just yet. The best part is we're always finding new stuff as well. This week, we're talking about biorobotics with a genius, Thomas Taruttle, who has helped build a proper working robotic arm.
2: We create our own sensors, there are tiny pockets of air bubbles inside the skin and once you touch an object these air bubbles get compressed there is a change in pressure Uh, this can be measured and then it's processed by artificial intelligence to understand what this information means, and then take action based on that information
1: and we'll take a trip to deep space high to see how old flu cells can harm the mars
3: rover Who can remember what we've learned so far? Well, the materials
4: used on a rover have to be able to cope with extreme temperatures. Mars gets very cold.
1: And we'll get back down to Earth and answer some of your questions about everything this week. They are on light years and how we make water even wetter. It's coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's get started with your science in the news. A skeleton of a 67-million-year-old T-Rex has been sold at an auction for £5 million. It's over 11 metres long. It's almost 4 metres tall. It's the first time that it's been auctioned in Europe, a dinosaur. Now, scientists are concerned about these incredible fossils, uh, about them ending up in homes and not in museums, where we can look at them, the public, where experts can study them... And I completely understand that. If I had millions of pounds and could buy a T-Rex, I might give it some thought, you know. Also, a zoo in the UK has had a birthday for a penguin. Spend lives in Paradise Park in Cornwall and is thought to be the oldest Humboldt penguin in the country. It turned... 35 years old. Huge happy birthday to Spem. Normally, these penguins only live to about 20 in the wild, so it shows how well looked after these creatures can be in wildlife conservation centres. And at the party, it got a three-tiered birthday cake decorated with fish, because it's a penguin, obviously. And finally, back to the ocean, a mermaid. A mermaid in Florida has been breaking records and collecting rubbish. Merle Levan lives in America and she's known as Mermaid Merle. She broke a record for swimming thirty miles around the Biscayne Bay in Miami and she collected rubbish as she went. Uh, amazing that we can have a mermaid? living amongst us and that mermaid not just dives into the ocean but helps to clean things up and raise some fantastic awareness from some of the bad things us humans can do like leaving rubbish all over the place which ends up in the ocean so fantastic work from mermaid merle it's time to spin the wheel of the a to z of engineering then For the last few weeks, we've been looking at engineering, how things are made, why they're built, who came up with the ideas for them too. We've been going right the way through the alphabet from A to Z, from acoustics to zoos, I guess, with some xylophones in the middle. Now, this week on Engineering Academy, we need to catch up with our engineering expert, Engers, and spin the wheel to find out what letter we're looking at.
5: Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel.
6: It's K, and K is for kinetic.
5: Now you might be thinking, what does kinetic mean? Well, it's all about motion, or rather capturing the energy of motion. Kinetic engineers investigate motion and force and come up with ways to convert these into energy. It's an exciting field because kinetic energy is considered a renewable energy source and motion is already part of many everyday processes. From revolving doors to going for a jog to getting fit, we capture these motions and convert them into energy, perhaps to power lights or charge up our smartwatches as we move. On a larger scale, kinetic energy can be harnessed to generate what we need to power and heat our homes. Wind turbines are kinetic, converting energy in the wind into mechanical power, whilst hydropower captures energy from the movement of the tides and water flows. The exciting thing is that we don't have to generate the movement. It already exists. Pretty cool, right? Here's Engers to tell us more.
6: As we know. We need energy to do many everyday things, even simple things like charging our phones. And we hope this energy comes from renewable sources, like solar power and wind farms. But what if you could charge your phone by just dancing? That's what kinetic engineers have been looking at, creating dance floors that convert the movement of the dancers into energy, enough to charge up a phone and even take a selfie. So how does it work? Well. When you dance or step on a special floor tile, an internal mechanical process is set in motion. This is connected to a dynamo which converts the movement into electricity. Depending on the weight of the step, the floor tiles will create around 2 watts per step. And if you were doing high-impact dancing or jumping, this could go up to 35 watts. To give you an idea of what this means, 35 watts is enough to power a light bulb. The Kinetic Tiles are constructed from glass, steel, recycled plastic and electronics, all of which can be easily separated and recycled at the end of the tile's life cycle. But the fun doesn't stop there. Games and challenges can be added to the floors, with the kinetic energy created by the players converted into electricity. Players can compete with each other in an energy battle. Perhaps they could generate energy to activate a photo booth, or visualize the amount of energy generated on the energy meter. The band Coldplay made use of kinetic flooring to help reduce their carbon emissions during their 2022 tour. Kinetic dance floor tiles were assembled in a circle for fans to dance whilst helping power the concert. But if they didn't want to dance, there were also 15 stationary bikes to cycle on to create energy.
5: Thanks, Engers. When you think about the movement all around us, you can see that kinetic engineers have an almost limitless source of energy. And there's a limitless number of ways it can be used, and crucially in a renewable way. And that's our take on the letter K. It's been crazy. If you would like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out Kite or Knowledge Engineering? Engineer Academy.
1: Let's get into your questions then. I love this part of the show. I get the chance to become a science detective, to... Look things up to research everything from all around the world, different parts of science, all to answer the questions that you send over to me about anything science that you're thinking. There are a few ways that you can get in touch. My favourite way, because it helps you be the star of the show, it lets me hear your question, is by leaving a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or clicking the big record button at funkidslive.com, like this.
4: Hi, Dan. I'd like to know what is a light year?
1: Rory, thank you very much. Uh, a light year is, well, it's quite confusing. It's a measure of distance, not time, even though it has year in the word. Let me help you get your head around this. It's the amount of distance that a beam of light travels in one Earth year. So light travels at a constant speed. How far that reaches in an Earth year is a light year. It's a distance. Now, light travels 186,000 miles every second. There are 31,536,000 seconds in a year, and light travels 5.88 trillion miles in that time. So one light year is equal to 5.88 trillion miles, which blows your mind. When we hear about these planets that are thousands, millions of light years away, they are thousands, millions of times, 5.88 trillion miles. So much to get your head around, Rory. Thank you so much for the question. Another way that you can leave uh, something for me to answer is as a review on Apple Podcasts. That's what Lavender has done. Lavender is in Trinidad who wants to know, how do firefighters make water wetter? Have you heard about this? Firefighters they are able to make the water that they spray onto fire wetter. It's absolutely possible. They've, made, they've, done, they've done this to make water better and more efficient at extinguishing fires. You see, why water works at getting rid of a fire is a couple of reasons. It takes away a lot of the oxygen which the fire needs to live. And most importantly, it cools the heat down. It sucks up a lot of the heat from whatever is burning the more of that water can hit what is burning and turns it to steam and not fire, Uh, a, a bit like how you sweat, really. It sucks the heat away. It's the most important because by doing that, there's less of it to actually make the fire. Now, firefighters use chemicals called wetting agents. What they do is they make the edge of the water, the surface tension, think of it like the water's skin, they make it much softer so that when the water hits what it needs to, what's ablaze, it scatters much quicker and much easier. So it spreads very quickly around whatever is burning. So more of it can be used to cool down whatever is on fire and it makes it work and makes it chilled much better and much faster, which makes it a lot easier to put out flames. So that lavender is how you make water wetter by just Easing, making that surface tension, the water's skin a lot softer. Thank you very much for the question. If you've got something that you want answered next week on the show, best place is to get over on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com, use that big record button, let me know who you are so I can say hello and then send over that all-important question.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover the that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!
1: For this week's Dangerous Dan, we are carrying on our look at some of the most strange animal defense mechanisms in the wild and we're talking about the boxer crab. The boxer crab is found in the oceans towards the east of the world really and they look amazing. They're brightly colored with mixes of yellows, greens and red. They've got black stripes and white dots along their legs they look like something from the night sky and they're small they only grow to around 2.5 centimeters long which is like half the size of your finger maybe a little bit bigger than that it's got long thin legs as well now it's a crab but it doesn't have claws like you might think no pincer claws which means they need to come up with a new way to defend themselves and that's how they get their name the boxer crab now, quickly, let me introduce you to the sea anemone. Hard to say, the sea anemone. They are a, a creature in the ocean, a bit like a plant. They live down there. There's not a lot going on. They don't have many cells to them. They don't move much, but they can be poisonous. Now, the boxer crab collects some of these sea anemones on its long arms and gives them a free ride, and then, as but uh, as payback, it um, it uses them to defend itself it puts them all along its arms as spiky poisonous boxing gloves if anything comes hunting how amazing is that if it's approached by a big predator it'll fling its arms out with its spiky poisonous sea anemone boxing gloves to warn them off and maybe even get a direct hit if you get close, it'll sock you with a spike that'll hurt. It's poisonous, and what a brilliant way of defending itself, which means the boxer crab goes straight onto our dangerous dan list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We're talking about biorobotics today. It's amazing what we can get robots and AI to do, and we're finding out all about it with Thomas George Turatel, who's good enough to join us. Uh, Thomas, you worked on, on an incredible project with the team from the University of Cambridge. It was all about robotic arms and getting them to actually grip things and hold on to them. Just tell us when you first started to plan what this uh, project might be.
2: Right. So when we started working on this project, our first objective was to make robotic hands uh, very similar to how the human hands are. Uh, so we were trying to make these hands which have a soft skin and rigid skeletons just like the human hand. Uh, so that was our primary objective. Uh, there are many reasons to doing, for doing that. We were trying to develop this hand which is similar to the human hand and then teach it how to grasp objects. Why... Has it taken us
1: such a long time in making robotics to be able to have a hand that does this? Why was it such a challenge to figure out how to make this work, Thomas?
2: It's easy for robots to do repetitive things if you know everything that is that it's supposed to do. So if I wanted to pick up objects that are of the same shape and size, then it's an easy problem in robotics. Uh, But the challenge in grasping is when you have to pick up a lot of different objects, which has minute differences. Um, That is quite challenging in robotics. Uh, So in order to solve that, we need to have designs which are, for lack of better explanation, need to be bio-inspired. So that's why we were looking into making these robots with soft skin and a rigid skeleton inside.
1: So tell us, in your research before you had started to make the robot, how much did you think about how us humans get to hold on and grip something? Like when I'm picking something up, I've got a a pen right next to me, for instance. I'm holding a pen now. I look at this pen. I can feel it. I know how big it is and then I can grip my fingers around it and I know it's there, and I can drop it if I want to. There's quite a lot that's going on with my senses to help that happen. How much did you have to decode what was going on when we pick up things to make it work for robots?
2: Yeah, so we actually did look a lot into human uh, design, human body design, and human sensory system because we know f- for sure that humans are really good at the manipulation problem and robot is struggling. So one of the things we were looking at is how important is the design, how important is uh, the skin, how important is the skeleton. So that's why we designed the robot exactly like the human body. And the next aspect we looked into is the sensory system. Uh, so there are a lot of experiments, human experiments, where they show that if you don't have this sensation of touch this simple task of picking up an ob- of pen is very very difficult even if you are looking at the pen if you have visual information even that is not enough uh, to pick up objects and and manipulate them uh, so that is exactly why in our robot we had both these elements so we had as you know a hand which is soft outside and also had some primitive sense feeling of touch
1: how were you able to do that with a robot in my hand? Well, in our hand, we have loads of sensors, loads of nerves underneath the skin, which know exactly what's going on. How did you replicate that with a robot hand and fake skin?
2: Yeah, we create our own sensors, which are not exactly like the human hands, the the sensors that you have in the human hand. But it it takes in the same sort of information. So they actually work. The principle is very simple. So there are tiny pockets of air bubbles inside the skin. And once you touch an object, these air bubbles get compressed and there is a change in pressure. Uh, This can be measured. And so there are like a lot of these tiny air pockets which take in information from different areas of the skin. And then it's processed by artificial intelligence. So we use AI to understand what this information coming from these air channels mean, and then take action based on that information.
1: How much did you have to think about the force that the robot hand was using to grip onto things? What I mean is that if I'm holding a bowling ball or a rock, for instance, those are quite strong, right? I can really grip onto it and I'm not going to make much of an issue. But if I'm holding onto a strawberry, which is soft, or a peach or something like that, and I grip onto it too tough, it will squash in my hand. How much did you think about different ways the robot arm can grip onto something with different strengths?
2: Even us humans cannot estimate forces very well. Uh, So we can roughly estimate the amount of force that we are applying on objects. Our sensor system is not accurate enough to accurately estimate the forces that you apply. So we don't actually do that as humans. We are able to do all these tasks without precise estimation of forces being applied. Uh, So that is cool. And a lot of that is because of our design itself. Uh, So our hand needs to have all these soft compliant elements because they kind of help not exert a lot of force. So they make sure that we don't apply too much pressure on the object. So when you're grasping an egg, these soft skin wrap around the object and make sure that forces are distributed uh, in order to not break the egg. So this is not done by the brain. This is purely done by the body itself. Oh, wow. I never knew that. And
1: lastly, I guess you've made the robot hand. What, what does it what does it do? Like, as in, why wh- why, why make it? How useful can it be to us?
2: It's, it's still a fundamental study. So we are not currently looking at applications, uh, at least at this stage. So our objective was like simply to see if we can replicate what we see in nature and looking at the technology that will allow us to do it. So I have to add sensors to my body without changing the properties of the skin, which is a big challenge. I think we can at the moment say that this is feasible. Now in the next challenge is to add more sensors, first of all, and then also add muscles to the hand. So the hand we did in our study does not have any muscles or actuators. So it is completely passive. So it's, it's not, it only moves by moving its wrist. So the fingers by itself do not move at all. Uh, it's still able to do a lot of things. We are trying to now add muscles to these fingers so that the fingers can also move independently uh, and do cooler things.
1: Amazing. Well, there's so much going on. Thomas, George, Duratel, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thank you for inviting me.
1: Let's take a quick trip to Deep Space High then. For the last little while, we have been travelling up to one of the smartest schools in the solar system. Deep Space High is brilliant because uh, Professor Pulsar, who teaches us there, knows everything about the universe around us. There's also this huge window. Imagine what the window's like in your classroom. What does it look out at? Maybe the playground or a school field, maybe some goalposts. This window looks out at the entire solar system. Now, in this series, we're looking at the red planet. We're looking at Mars, finding out how we can design a Mars rover. And this week, we're thinking about the challenge of making sure that nothing from Earth goes along for the ride on the ExoMars rover. Nothing that's not meant to be on the red planet. There would be nothing worse than finding some old flu cells from down here up on Mars. Jump into
5: and to Deep space, high. In
6: space But hurry, because are about to begin.
3: So gang, we've been thinking about the challenges presented by the terrain and environment on Mars and how it affects the design for robots that are being sent from Earth. Who can remember what we've learned so far?
4: Well, the materials used on a rover have to be able to cope with extreme temperatures. Mars gets very cold. Brilliant. Anyone else? They also have to cope with dust storms which can smother solar arrays
6: and get into the equipment.
3: You have to be tough to be a Mars rover, don't you? So today we're thinking about another design challenge. I'll give you a clue. It's to do with the mission objective. I wonder who can remember that? Is it
4: to locate the famous Martian
3: water world and skate park? Well, one of the
6: objectives are to find out if there are any signs of life on Mars. Is that close?
3: Very close indeed. Now, if a robot is on Mars looking for the tiniest piece of life or organic material, what's something that could go wrong? Imagine if someone sneezed onto the equipment, and when the ExoMars rover arrived on Mars, its probes discovered traces of the sneeze cells. People might jump to the wrong conclusions, that there was life on Mars, and that they also suffered from colds.
6: I suppose even the tiniest
4: particles of organic material from Earth could get trapped on the rover, and be taken all the way on the mission. That would give the scientists very confusing results.
3: That's why every single piece of equipment on the ExoMars rover has to be completely sterile and clean of any organic material. Even everyday materials can't be used, like rubber for tyres and certain oils. They're organic materials and contain traces of living organisms from Earth. Every bit of plastic, every drop of paint, any lubricant used, must be totally synthetic.
6: I suppose it's also a good thing to make sure the rover is clean, because if bacteria or germs did get onto Mars... Well,
4: it could kill off whatever life was there to start with. Can you imagine that news story? We're excited to announce that we've found life on Mars. But unfortunately, a snotty tissue from Earth got stuck on the ExoMars rover and the common cold has killed off all the Martian life.
3: It sounds funny, but it's absolutely true. We don't want to contaminate Mars with germs or organic materials that could cause harm. So let's see how they tackle those challenges in the lab. As you can see, the laboratory where the ExoMars rover is built is a very clean and sterile environment. Technicians have to wear a full bodysuit, face mask and hair nets too. They're not allowed to touch the rover with bare hands. This is to prevent any human matter coming into contact with it. Before the rover can leave for Mars, technicians will have to sterilise it. So every component on it has to be either baked out, which is what it sounds like, basically put in an oven and baked for a very long time to kill off everything, or bombarded with hydrogen peroxide plasma, a hot bleach gas. Which isn't very nice if you're a living organism.
6: But if you heat up a circuit board or a delicate piece of machinery, or blast it with chemicals, won't that damage it?
3: You're right. It just shows how tough every last piece of the rover has to be, even before it's got to Mars.
4: Well, no-one said space exploration was easy. Certainly not if you're an ExoMars rover.
1: Deep Space High. Destination Mars. With support from the UK Space Agency find out more at funkidslive.com slash space And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. We will have another catch up with Professor Pulsar and Deep Space High at the same time next week. If you'd like to get ahead in that series, you can hear it and loads more brilliant stuff that we've made. Uh, On Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, they're on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com too. On that website, it's one of the best ways that you can send over a question. If there is something you want to ask, we've got a big record button on the Science Weekly page. Click it and then let me know what your question is. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio and over at funkidslive.com.